You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. AI keeps improving. It integrates people like with different smaller or less visible aspects related to whether it's the ethnic background, the skin complexion, the uh, like the type of hair, in, in, in our case, even masks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben tracks down the controversy over Apple's recently released AirTags. I review regulatory changes coming in 2022. And later in the show, my conversation with Richard Carreri of Cyberlink to discuss how AI is transforming surveillance. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's uh, jump in with some stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? What do you got? So my story comes from the New York Times by Ryan Mack and Kashmir Hill, and it is about the Apple AirTag. Uh, It was released in 2021. We can say that now, now that we're no longer in it. (laughs) Last year. Yeah, Yeah, so last year. (laughs) Um, But the AirTags are a way of helping you find things. So if you're like me, you lose things frequently. (laughs) Uh, and having the air tag, you know, attaching it to that thing, whether it's your car keys or a remote control or a anything child, that you, child <laughs> is, is nice. Yeah. Anything you right, don't right. want to lose. Right. Uh, you, you attach your air tag, uh, to that thing. Yeah. Uh, of course, with any technology like this, you're going to get some privacy concerns and we're starting to see these stories of people getting notifications on their phones saying, there's an air tag that's been in your vicinity for the last six hours. Right. So the hook, they talked to this woman from Los Angeles who got one of those notifications. She does not own an air tag, uh, but something had been attached somewhere near her for a period of six hours. Apple, to their credit, has set up a system where you're alerted if you know you've been followed around by an air tag. Right. To prevent against air tags being used as a surveillance tool. So you can see mm-hmm. why a criminal, for example, might want to use it, or even an enterprising law enforcement agency, um, instead of you know tacking it onto your child, tack it onto somebody's car to follow them. Right. Um, you know, tack it to your ex-wife's vehicle. Uh, you know, to see if they're cheating on you. Tack it to. I saw I saw one yesterday on Twitter where someone was tracking their luggage being stolen from the airport in real time thanks to an air tag. <laughs> That's funny. That's always the worst when yeah. you're seeing what the criminal <laughs> is doing with your own stuff. It's like right, right. Oh no, he's he's taking it to a gas station. 
Don't don't yeah. pay those exorbitant gas prices, you know, <laughs> right, right. with my suitcase but, in your car. But the stalking issue, of course, is a serious one. And and so what are the what are the issues that are being brought up here? So stalking is is a very serious issue. Um you have a situation where if somebody wanted to follow somebody, you just have to get, you know, one of these air tags on something that belongs to them. So a car, a device, anything. And then at least for a short period of time, the uh, person will not know that they're being followed or surveilled. They're not going to mm-hmm. know that they're being stalked. Apple, largely in response to these concerns, uh, you know, and because they're an enterprising company that, that cares about privacy, has set up this system where you get an alert on your phone um, you know, you're near. You've been near an air, air tag for a long period of time. Right. The problem with that is most people who would get that alert don't have an air tag and have no idea what that is or what it means. Mm. Um, you know, I can just imagine somebody getting an alert like that. It just, uh, you know, it, it's completely contextless. Yeah. Um, so Apple is saying they're taking that concern very seriously. Um, they set up that that feature that informs users. Um, they also encourage people to call local law enforcement. That's not really a very foolproof solution. In a couple of the anecdotes here, people did call law enforcement, and law enforcement was basically like, yeah, we, we don't really know what to do with that information. File a police report, uh, mm. and we'll see what, what happens. And that goes you know, into the vast universe of police reports somewhere right. up in the sky where, right, where nothing right, happens. Right, right, yeah. I remember when I was a kid and uh, I got a bicycle stolen and it was a little bit of, uh, of uh, you know, cynicism uh, added to my life when I realized that uh, the, my, my local police department was not going to aim all of their resources at getting back my lo- my stolen bicycle. You know? I know. It's, everybody <laughs> discovers that for the first time. It's right, like right. <laughs> you file a police report and if you actually ask an honest cop, like, what's going to happen with this? Nine times out of ten, they'll be like, oh, no, this is for insurance purposes. Right, exactly. <laughs> I should say more like 99 times out of 100. Yeah, yeah. So you know, a couple things interest. Uh, a couple things I find curious about this story. Um, first of all, Apple is not the first company to come out with any, this sort of tracking technology. The, the company uh, Tile has had little tracking tags for years, um, and it's always interesting to me that it seems as though. Um, you know, nothing gets attention. Nothing generates clicks like a negative story about Apple. Right. Right. So. And I get it. I mean, they hold themselves up as this, this, you know, the standard for privacy and security. Right. So I, I don't want to say they're asking for it, but they do invite this increased scrutiny. But I agree with mm-hmm. you. It's not mm-hmm. always fair. Mm-hmm. So where do we come down in the middle, though? I mean, obviously, this technology has legitimate uses. I, I would... I think having this on your luggage, for example, a great idea. Uh, you could put one in your own car. So if your car got stolen, you could try to, you know, I can think of all kinds of great uses for this. But on the other hand, I do see the problem with it. It seems to me like Apple is in good faith trying to put uh, things in place to try to minimize the the stalking potential here. But do we, is is the stalking potential so much that a product like this shouldn't exist? You know, I wouldn't go that far. I I think if you're going to have a product like this, it's best to put it in the relatively responsible hands of a company like Apple. They're not perfect. They make a ton of mistakes. We cover all of their mistakes. 
but they do respond to this feedback. Um, the story also mentions there was a security feature where if the device has been disconnected from its home uh, smartphone, so to speak, the smartphone that controls it, mm-hmm. for more than 72 hours, then uh, the AirTag will start beeping. And they shorten that to 24 hours to try and prevent you know, this type of stalking from occurring. So if you mm-hmm. put it on somebody else's device, after 24 hours, it'll start beeping. 24 hours is still a long time. And you might be able to fulfill your stocking goals, um, whatever they are, within those 24 hours. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't think, in in my opinion, is is not that they should take this device off the market. I think it's a useful device, especially as somebody who loses things all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think in the long run, it's just incumbent upon Apple to continue to make these adjustments. We are going to see viral stories on TikTok about... You know, people discovering air tags on the back of their license plate. Um, yeah. That's going to be bad publicity for them. It's going to make people question whether these devices should exist. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I'm generally more amenable when the device itself has some actual practical use and the benefits, at least conceivably, might outweigh the costs. Yeah. I saw another interesting story not long after these came out where there was a gentleman who um, had – he bought himself a little electric scooter. He worked in a city, and so he would use his electric scooter to get uh, around town. Um, and he was afraid that it would get stolen, so he put uh, air tags on the scooter. But he actually put two air tags on the scooter. He put a decoy air tag that was very ah, easy. Very, very easy smart. To you find. never know which one is the is the uh, well, yeah. So he hid one very uh, carefully so that it wasn't easy to find. But he put a decoy one that was easy to find. So if the thieves stole his scooter, they would quickly find the decoy one, remove it, and think they were good to go. And sure enough, that's what happened. Uh, this person, able, yeah, the criminals have not watched enough heist movies because <laughs> right. I've seen that. You know, you always have to put a decoy out there. Yeah, so this guy was able to track the scooter down to a, a local, uh, you know, pawn shop, that sort of thing, and sure enough, he was able to uh, get the police to come, and he did get his scooter back. But uh, very smart. I mean, maybe so. for every air tag we produce, we just have to pr- produce, you know, one decoy so that right. You can Maybe there's a market out. there. Yeah, Apple can yeah. sell uh, uh, AirTag blanks that don't have exactly. the electronics inside. They just the, look the like fake AirTags. Tag. Yeah, yep. there you go. Get you know, It's a million dollar idea. Yeah, <laughs> but somehow we All never right. get a million dollars for these ideas. We do not. We do not. No ideas are a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. It's execution, Ben. Execution. <laughs> I know. I know. That's what we. That's what we have to keep telling ourselves. Right. Right. All right, well, we will have a link to that story uh, from the New York Times in the show notes. Uh, My story this week uh, comes from the Wall Street Journal, uh, written by James Rundle. Uh, And really, it's just sort of uh, an overview of of some of the things that might be coming this year in 2022 when it comes to regulation in the cybersecurity realm. Um, The thing I wanted to focus on with you today, Ben, was reporting requirements. Mm You know, there are lots of uh, other industries when a bad thing happens, they are required to report it. First thing right. that comes to mind to me are airlines. Yep. Uh, if and, an you know, all, happens, yep, all transportation covered by NTSB. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, even I, I, my understanding is like even in like general aviation, if you have, uh, you know, an issue with your uh, plane that like there are 
very specific rules about, you know, tracking the repairs and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, we don't have that in cybersecurity yet. And there is bipartisan support for a move to make that happen. Uh, they tried to put it in the Defense Authorization Act, but it got uh, pulled out as part of the negotiations to get that passed. Where, where do you think we're going to see this go in the coming year? Yeah, I was not surprised to see that removed from the defense authorization bill. The defense authorization bill is always this behemoth where it becomes kind of a Christmas tree. Anything that's vaguely related to security, you try and get it in the bill. Mm. Um, and then negotiations whittle things down. Even though there is bipartisan support for these uh, breach notification requirements, you know, I think it's a complicated enough issue that I understand why they weren't able to sneak it in a larger bill. Uh, I think this is going to have to be kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach with a bunch of different stakeholders. One of the things this article talks about is the precarious state of cybersecurity generally in 2022. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic continues and we're going to be dealing with staffing shor- shortages. Um, that is certainly going to uh, apply to, to our industry. And then you combine that with the rapid increase in threats that we're seeing, the increased frequency of ransomware, When you start to institute mandatory reporting requirements, these are going to start to be very onerous on companies, particularly Mm -hmm. smaller companies that might not have the resources, might not have the compliance officers to know exactly what they have to report. Um, So I think we, you know, it might take a little while, but we need to develop like a comprehensive framework um, where we have very specific, actionable rules as to what a company has to do or any organization when um, they've been the victim of a breach. And I just don't, I I understand why that didn't happen as part of the defense authorization bill, but I do think it is going to happen going forward. I think we are going to be able to develop those standards. Um, We now have a national cyber director and Chris Inglis and the head of CISA, Jen Easterly, who are very committed to reform in this area. Um, And I think with their leadership and interest on both sides of the aisle in Congress, I think this is something that will probably get done sooner rather than later. You know, I, I was uh, reading through an interesting thread on Reddit yesterday uh, for a bunch of uh, uh, chief security officers, and they were talking about uh, incident response and um, specifically responding to ransomware threats. And someone brought up the point that um, they've seen cases where uh, when a company has been an outside company has been brought in to help clean up the mess after a ransomware attack, that sometimes they have been uh, specifically requested not to submit a final report because of discoverability. Right. Right. So let's talk about that. What, what the the liability part of this? Yeah, I mean that's what makes this so difficult and so complicated. Is if you think you're going to be held liable for a breach, it behooves you to bury all the bodies. Uh, and so that's not exactly a uh, you know favorable incentive structure. I don't know how you work around that because certainly I think people who are legitimately or companies that are legitimately negligent, you know, particularly when it comes to like uh, PII, personally identifiable information. Mm-hmm. We want to hold them accountable. We want to have some sort of legal mechanism where they can be held liable. They're the people who, who cause the loss of that information. Um, but I also think you know maybe we have to be more careful and have some safe harbor provisions where 
certain things, internal reports might not be the subject to discovery in federal litigation. I don't know exactly how that would work in practice, but it certainly is a problem. I think there's going to be less incentive to fully document exactly what happened, you know, do a type of after-action report if that's going to be held against you once you get into discovery. You know, it's not a problem that's unique to this field. It's true when we talk about all different types of, of, of accidents. We see it in the transportation sector all the time. I do think the difference in this field is it's still relatively new, so there isn't sort of a uniformly agreed-upon best practice as to how to respond to these incidents, hmm. which means you know it's, it's, it's much harder to determine whether a company has actually been negligent because you're compared to your peers. You're compared to what a reasonable organization would have done. So in that sense, I mean, maybe and just thinking out loud here, you can have a shorter safe harbor provision where information might not be discoverable, at least for the next 10 years to or five years or whatever to until we you know, can figure out some justiciable standards. Is this a a chicken and the egg kind of thing where you know we have to we we want to establish whatever the standards are, but we're still kind of reaching around in the dark to to figure out what's reasonable? I think that's exactly what the problem is, you know, um because the threats themselves are getting more sophisticated. So you know, and and it takes a while once an attack happens, a ransomware attack or any uh, breach of information to figure out exactly what happened. Um, you know, the best example recently that affected our state personally here in Maryland is the Maryland Department of Health was the uh, victim of some sort of cyber incident. Still hasn't been divulged whether it was a ransomware attack, although um, certainly that's been the uh, speculation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, the COVID dashboard, for example, in the state of Maryland was down for a month while our cases were accelerating. So we were kind of in the dark, you know, so it had those kinetic effects. We were suffering the the consequences. And we still basically have no idea what happened. Um, we, uh, you know, lots of people within the state suffered consequences. People couldn't apply for, for Medicaid funds. But, you know, we're it's still so soon after the incident. The incident itself is so novel um, that, you know, it would be impossible to develop a set of standards based on this incident, you know, to prevent mm-hmm. it from happening from happening again. So it is a chicken and the egg problem. The threat landscape keeps expanding and, you know, our universe of potential uh best practices will constantly be expanding as well. Right, right. I suppose part of this too is establishing, you know, what's what's the equivalent of a cyber fender bender and what's the equivalent of a of a plane crash. A full-on, yeah. 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 Full-on collision. Or exactly. An actual train wreck, right? Right, right. You know, it, it, and that's very hard to define in the cyber realm. You know, you could say the monetary value of the information that's been breached, but that doesn't always capture the full extent of the consequences. You know, I don't mm. think there was a lot of money to be earned from a lot of the breaches we've seen, uh, but they were still very disruptive and, and still had you know, pretty uh, negative consequences on people's everyday lives. So I don't know, I, you know, I don't know how, exactly how you would measure that. Um, yeah. It's not as easy. With a fender bender, you go and get an estimate. It's, it's just not the same in this cyber realm where it's not always as simple as here's the monetary value of the information that's been breached. That's, you know, because it happens in 
the public sector, where you're talking about, you know, uh, stealing people's personally identifiable information from government databases, the consequences can go beyond simple, you know, monetary value. So, right. yeah, it's just, it's really hard to determine. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, for sure, we've got an interesting year ahead of us uh, on many realms. And so we'll see how sure this plays out. As you said, I think it's uh, it's good to see that we've got some good folks in place uh, at the federal level who uh, both know what they're doing and uh, seem to be in good faith, uh, you know, really set on on doing the right thing here. So I think that's absolutely. Uh, good to see. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. If you have a story or a topic you'd like for us to discuss on our show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Richard Carreri. He is from a company called Cyberlink. And our conversation centers on artificial intelligence and the ways that that is transforming surveillance. Here's my conversation with Richard Carreri. No, at the moment, we're at a very interesting point in time. Uh, the technology, uh, if we go back even two years, it was the beginning of uh, the emergence, if you want, of edge-based facial recognition, so edge-based computing. Finally, uh, lots of offerings came up that were powerful enough to uh, do this kind of processing without needing uh, cloud processing, which causes all sorts of issues that we could talk about. So that's like where we were, but the, the market demand was not there yet. Facial recognition had been used for a long time, whether it's uh, kiosks uh, like global entry or or some, uh, well, people, anyone who uses uh, one brand of uh, phones, uh, mobile phones, uh, we probably give our access to everything in our life using our face without thinking twice. But other than that, a lot of uh, press, uh, a lot of opinions, what I call the doomsday sayers that exist since uh, the discovery of fire were there. And there were some some good value points two, three years ago. Uh, Now the technology has caught up. So things such as... uh, the ability to easily spoof or uh, some bias that uh, were there for different skin complexions or ethnicities, uh, just the ability to measure vectors on the on the face to, to create that uh, unique key uh, was a bit more challenging. By and large, these things have been resolved today as uh, AI has continued to improve the models. 
So now we're, we're getting the point of adoption. And uh, if you read the press, you say it's terrible, like this thing will never take off. But then just look everywhere around you. It's popping off left and right. Consumers are adopting. They're not afraid as long as they view the convenience of a use case that requires uh, the facial recognition and that they feel that it's provided by a trusted vendor. We already give a lot of our personal information to every hotel chain, bank, and uh, whatnot. So I don't think it's a problem. So we have that. Enterprises see the need back uh, after uh, COVID. A lot of offices have started opening. Big, big companies, a lot of them uh, will start opening, uh, will reopen their office January 1st. All sorts of models that are hybrid, uh, potentially have a lot of people who show up some days of the weeks, don't show up, creating access control uh, needs. There's costs, obviously pressure. So finding solutions to reduce the cost of security, surveillance, controlling access flow. So there's lots of things uh, where there's demand just in the business. I just come back from a uh, executive summit from the retail industry, retail and hospitality, where you had C-level people of about 20 companies that could develop and provide technology for uh, retail and hospitality. And uh, of all the things, and we were magpaying, talking about what's coming, the, not the next five to 10 years, but the next two, three years. And every single use case, uh, the person brought up what they were doing, plus facial recognition. And it's because their distributors, their end customers, whether it's hotels, restaurants, retail chains, demand that. I was very happy to be there because I was the facial recognition guy. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunities, but this is where we are right now in the market. So technology is is there, customers are theirs, uh, business are there. uh, So we just need to go get running, make sure that uh, what is done uh, is done uh, following all the rules of of ethics. And I can talk a bit like that on that uh, after, but uh, I think we're in a very good place for facial recognition at the moment. What do you and and folks in the business see as some of the opportunities that were that are going to open up in the next couple of years when it comes to facial recognition technology uh, making life better for consumers? Number one, I would say giving access and protecting access to everything around you, whether it's your car, whether it's your home, whether it's your work, online, and we're talking here physical access. Then you have online access. Uh, your bank account remotely, your computer. This is where uh, this thing is moving very fast, where people are are comfortable and they they will see these uh, things pop up left and right. Uh, the other one is around, uh, I would say, identity verification, like these things that today require an in-person meeting. So Think of uh, banking, think of uh, <laughs> buying a, a bottle of wine. Hmm. Uh, you need to show an ID and you need to prove that you are there. So ordering online these things or opening a bank account online is not feasible today. Even checking in a hotel, uh, if you go like the, the, the big chains, uh, they say, oh, you can check in online, but make sure when you show up the hotel, you go to the desk to still show your ID and show that it's you. So we have technologies there uh, where we can uh, authenticate the license place on one side and the other, not the license place, sorry, the, the, the ID card, the PE, whether it's a driver's license, identity card, passport, and then make sure the other end that it's a real person, it's not a photo or a video that's proof. So this kind of thing, as people with COVID 
those who are not already doing everything from home uh, now uh, want to for the convenience. Uh, we'll see that. And I would say the third one is about just pure customer experience, uh, whether it's retail, talk to anyone in retail, in hospitality. Uh, they lost the uh, airline industry. They lost a lot of money uh, not having customers. Now they're all uh, very uh, aggressive to gain market share as things go back or stay in business. So uh, things like contactless everything. So uh, like I think there's a pilot program right now at the Atlanta airport uh, with Delta that international flights, you can literally go from the curbside all the way to your seat on the plane without touching anything, talking to anyone. You just go through and solve facial recognition based. So these things, imagine this versus the long queues that you have sometimes uh, at airports. Uh, talk about an improvement. Uh, customer experience of streamlining things. Anywhere that you have bottlenecks, like sports stadiums, companies like Clears start having their technology, not just at security in airports, but to uh, go to sports stadiums. So people just walk in, put it to the, in fact, they just go to the kiosk, put it, bring it to the next level, which is a technology like ours. You can have a couple of cameras in front of each entrance and people just walk in the stadium like they own the place. Uh, we've deployed that not in sports stadium yet, but we've deployed that in factories. There's a factory, I think, of 20,000 employees somewhere in Asia that implemented that. And there was a bottleneck of half an hour for employees to walk in the place and do all the checks for security, COVID, their uh, security gear, and then another half hour to leave the workplace after the day. Uh, they replaced it with cameras and uh, face me technology. And uh, employees don't even slow down. It's like going to the fast track on the freeway. Mm. So they come in, they come out. We uh, resolve the, the, the worst uh, issue that that company had uh, with uh, 1080p cameras uh, or software that runs in workstations that are in the four, four figure, not the six figures. And everybody is happy. How is the industry uh, responding to all of the concerns about privacy? Well, it's not a new concern. And this is where I said at the beginning, the technology is ready uh, and is mature enough to uh, be deployed in almost every use case you can think of. Uh, the application, privacy protection is not facial recognition itself. It's the database, the data that you have. And there's a few things that some uh, facial recognition solutions like ours can help a lot is that you don't need to have the actual picture of somebody's face in a database. Uh, what we do, we create a, what we call a template, which is a small uh, encrypted file with a bunch of zeros and ones that marks, maps vectors on someone's face. And every single one of them, there's a chance in a million to uh, more or less to have two that would be uh, mixed up together. Uh, so they're all very unique. Uh, think of a thumbprint, the size of a thumbprint versus the size of your face in terms of precision, and it gives you an idea. So it's mm -hmm. a chance in a million that uh, is there. So it's a tiny file, highly encrypted. It's uh, very hard to reproduce, very easily identifiable with the, the right technology. So there's no mix-up of people. It's very rare when it happens. Uh, and so these are things. And and. Uh, and, and the fact that uh, technologies now don't have to send everything to the cloud and back. Like the mm. early days, uh, you would take a picture, send the picture to the cloud, their cloud processing, they would extract a template. A few seconds later, it would come back and forth. 
And the next thing you knew, it, take, it took a minute to recognize someone. Now uh, we talk about, about very reasonable uh, hardware, nothing uh, space age. Half a second, you identify people in front of camera, and that could be up to 70 people, I think, in a 1080p camera without getting too much into details. They identify there's somebody, this person, create, we uh, read the template on their face, we match with the database another template. We say, oh, this person is John, and uh, that this happens. And we can also see, tell you in that uh, half second that John is a man, he's between the age of 45 and 50, and he seems happy. To answer the question, I was I took a big detour. So there's nothing in the facial recognition here that invades privacy. If anything, it protects privacy because there's no better means to control access, better than a password, better than pin the eyes and whatever. But then if the database that has the information about customers and let's say their social security number, bank accounts, uh, name of their mom and, uh, and and passport information, if this is not properly protected, then this is where the weakness is. Mm. Uh, and this is a problem that has existed for a long time. Several of us, uh, we know that without naming anyone, that uh, our private personal information is probably everywhere on the dark web by now. So this is a false concern. And uh, the best proof, again, is uh, consumers. The convenience is there. They know that nobody will do worse than that uh, hotel loyalty program or credit agency or whatever. So uh, people go with it again. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen a lot of news stories about uh, a lack of accuracy with some of these systems, particularly, as you mentioned early on, you know, having trouble with people of color or, you know, types of people who aren't necessarily well represented in the training data. Where are we now? I mean, how do you as an industry put people at ease that we're beyond that? Yeah, uh, well, there's one source that is highly credible and uh, used uh, as the benchmark is uh, NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. Uh, they, uh, every month or every three months, they benchmark, like we can submit, every, once every three months, each company, a vendor like us can submit an algorithm or a number of algorithms and they do tests and benchmark of all of them and they benchmark the accuracy you know, is it working? Like you take your iPhone and one times out of 20, it doesn't work. It's because they have 95% accuracy. So they, they map the, the, the top players. We're, we're at the top of the list uh, together, mainly with companies in Russia and China that don't commercialize in the US for all sorts of reasons. But we're talking about 99.8%, in fact, 99.73% accuracy, which means that uh, it's very rare that they won't recognize your face right away. And that is measured independently by NIST. And they, they do test all sorts of tests. They do what they call visa picture. So face uh, not moving. They have a wild picture on the side. They have all the different models. Then they have uh, tests for different ethnic groups. Is the accuracy different? The models as AI keeps improving. Uh, we keep making our models better. It integrates people like with different smaller or less visible aspects related to whether it's the ethnic background, the skin complexion. The, even in some cases, it could be a handicap. It could be a, a, like a type of hair mm -hmm. style in front of the face or not. In, in, in our case, even masks, uh, 
if somebody wears a mask, that was a big problem two years ago. You cannot recognize them. The level of accuracy goes down very, very low. Now we're at a point where if you show up in front of a camera, face me is on the other side, you're wearing a mask properly over your nose and mouth. Just the data points between the eyes and the nose bridge are sufficient to give a accuracy level of up to 98.9%, uh, which is literally uh, like as good as uh, with a, with, without wearing a mask. And on top of that, we can identify, uh, let's say, in a hall or somewhere, if people are supposed to wear masks and they don't, then we can identify, pinpoint the people for that. So all these things uh, are uh, not only uh, improved by companies, but NIST measures them, ranks them, and uh, gives a pretty good idea who's good and who is not so good. And uh, we're pretty happy that we're, we're, we're good there. Is there collaboration among the companies who provide these sorts of things in terms of having some sort of uh, code of ethics, you know, something along those lines? I have not seen anything. What I can tell you, and and some of our competitors are doing things that uh, we would not do. Hmm. We try to be very respectful in every possible way. Uh, If you go to cyberlink.com on our homepage, one of the few items that show up at the bottom when company information is our statement of human rights. I uh, don't know many companies that uh, have that on their website, but uh, it came at the beginning of uh, our facial recognition work where we say, hold on, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it at the highest level of ethics uh, without sharing with you the ingredients or our secret sauce. Uh, when we build our models, uh, we do nothing that is remotely questionable in terms of are they using pictures of people who uh, did not agree and, and uh, are they doing things that uh, are, are twisted so we start there it's totally clean and the applications of the technology uh, we provide first a tool a solution that addresses these problems of bias of uh, even spoofing uh, there was ieee uh, ran a contest uh, at a conference on the computer vision a few months ago, uh, there was 265 companies that submitted uh, their tool to uh, try to uh, detect spoofing attempts. Uh, we ended up number three, again, at the very top, just behind a Chinese and a Russian company that were a fraction of a percentage better, but mm. basically identifying people, whether they you try to steal identity, so you use a picture of somebody or a video on, the, on a phone, or uh, even if you want to be uh, more uh, like uh, thriller movies, uh, like that movie of 20 plus years ago, Face Off, where you can have a mask right. look like somebody else. And uh, like we, we are, we're very good at that. So that's what you have to look at. And then whether it's us or other vendors, if you're a IoT or a manufacturer uh, before signing with some technology, uh, you better look at that very carefully. And as far as we know, they all do. There, uh, we'd say the ethics come from uh, company, individual companies. Uh, it comes from uh, the partners we have. We are strategically partnering with the chipset makers, the hardware makers, which are all companies many, many times, the few orders of magnitude uh, larger than we are. And they all have a very strict code of ethics. So whenever we partner with them around facial recognition, uh, we have their legal office involved with us to make sure that uh, we don't promote or do things that uh, are questionable. And so far, we're pa- passing this test with flying colors. So uh, 
uh, we feel good about that. I mean, could something happen that one of our customers uh, uses the technology to sell to a company that does something uh, to uh, do profile people and they're back without letting them know? Uh, at that point, uh, you know, it gets very far. We try to avoid all of these things, but uh, anything that uh, is on our control or within our reach working with our partners, uh, we're very careful about that. Ben, what do you think? I mean, this is an interesting area, yes? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a theme of this show that um, you can introduce something with such promise, but it always has, you know, significant pitfalls. I think we see that here. He talks about some of the advantages of this type of technology, especially for individual businesses. Yeah. So, you know, keeping patrons in stores longer, using artificial intelligence, identifying your most important customers, etc., but if it's going to be used for, you know, to further enhance our surveillance state, then we really have to balance those two interests. So, yeah, the technology itself is is extremely promising. It's cool. It's exciting. Um, but we just, you know, always have to be on guard that it's not going to be abused by bad actors. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think about, uh, you know, back when I was in my teen years and I worked at retail and, uh I worked in a local mall and sometimes, you know, mall security would come around with a a printed out sheet of paper that said, here's some pictures of folks who've been trouble in the mall Hmm. lately, you know, (laughs) been shoplifting and things like that. And this is kind of taking that to the next automated level. Uh, But and so I can see good and bad. I I can see it being a necessary thing. If I'm a shop owner, I want to know. I want to keep an eye out for. Oh, that face is bad news. Yeah, known troublemakers. But on the other hand, if it is in the realm of artificial intelligence, we've certainly uh, discussed over and over again how there's all sorts of potential for false positives, and that's yeah. Let's just say. Let's just say it's not always a foolproof system, to say the least. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Richard Carreri from Cyberlink for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. 
Caveat podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.